All right, so we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you were here last week, you'll probably remember that in this last section of the Gospel of Matthew, we are stepping into the last week of Jesus before he goes to the cross and then later on resurrects. And if you were here last week as well, you may remember that I explained that the Gospels, most of the, the Gospels have spent a ton of time explaining what happened in that last week of Jesus. In Matthew alone, one-third of the entire gospel is dedicated to that last week. And the reason why it's important for us to know is because in every single section of this, there is just so much for us to pay attention and learn from and be affected by that we, we, we're going to spend, I don't know, 20-something, 20 26 more sermons on this last week of Jesus. What makes this interesting, though, the passage that we're looking at this morning, is that we're going to learn something about the emotional life of Jesus. The emotional life of Jesus. And actually, we see three emotions, if you will, or two or three uh, emotional attitudes, we could call it. Uh, we're going to see the anger of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, and the love of Jesus. So the three points are angry Jesus, compassionate Jesus, loving Jesus. Super simple. All right? Just random question. How many of you guys ever thought that Jesus could have anger issues? One or two? The rest of you guys never thought about that? Okay, that's fine. Let's go with point number one. Angry Jesus. See, this is interesting because you read the Gospels and you find that Jesus experiences anger all the time. But for some reason, especially in modern culture, if you will, um, there's this tendency when we think about Jesus, we only think of him in terms of his love and his care and his understanding. And we got this, you know, cozy, nice Jesus. But what is interesting, though, is that the anger of Jesus and the love and the caring and the compassion of Jesus and all, all this stuff are never separated in the scriptures. In other words, we don't have permission to create this dichotomy in which we have this Jesus that is loving, caring, and understanding and not have his anger as part of who he is. Actually, if you have been part of the church... At least from me, you have heard that it's, it's an impossible thing for us to think that God could be a loving God if he is not an angry God. Doesn't that make you uncomfortable a little bit? Amen, brother. This is the thing. This is the argument. Super simple, actually. Actually, let me explain with this illustration. I guess I'm not going to follow those notes today. What would happen? How many of you guys have kids? Raise your hand. All right. What would happen if someone comes and hurts your kid in front of you? But you're a Christian and you're a person of love and care and understanding. Your reaction be toward the person that is affecting or hurting your kid? I will tell you what my reaction would be. Not only I'm gonna be angry in my emotions, but most likely because I'm not fully sanctified just yet, <laughs> might be tempted to show my anger in different ways. Does that make sense? I don't think it's right. But that's a thing. Now, with that in mind, 
then how could we have possibly have a Jesus that loves, cares, and understands and sees acts of injustice and abuse and sees the things that are destroying his people and the things that his people are doing that is hurting them and the people he loves? How could Jesus see the things that are wrong in this creation and not experience anger if I experience it as a sinful human being and he is sinless, much more Jesus is going to feel this anger when he sees everything that is destroying those things that are beautiful to him. You don't have permission to separate the love of God from the anger of God. It is because God is a God of love that he must be a God of anger and wrath. Not like your anger. Not like my anger. Because our anger is always mixed with sinfulness. His anger is always pure. See, this is, of course, this is not coming because I'm brilliant. This is coming because I read it from somebody. One of the first theologians, B.B. Weirfield, in the year 1912, he actually wrote an essay called The Emotional Life of Jesus. Many of the things that I'm saying today, I'm borrowing it from this guy. Right? And this is what he explains. Anger always flows from a place of moral judgment. Meaning, it is the reaction of the soul that feels pain before the presence of something we perceive to be wrong. So his whole argument is that as human beings, we feel anger because we are moral beings. We make moral judgments, something we perceive to be right and wrong. And when we see something wrong, it is impossible as human beings and as moral beings to not feel anger when something is for us to be perceived, is perceived to be wrong. So the whole argument for him is, if that is true for us, why wouldn't that be true for God? He cannot look at the things that we do wrong and say, that's all right. He just can't. He cannot see injustice in this world and say, well, that's all right. He just can't. He cannot see the weight of sin and the consequences of sin and say, well, that's all right. I need you to have that in mind as we dig into this text. Because that will be the only way that this text actually makes sense. This will be the only way that we can reconcile the anger of Jesus and the compassion and the love of Jesus. So let me give you a little bit of context. If you guys remember, this is the last week of Jesus once again. So this is all taking place in the last week right before he goes to the Passover celebration. If you're new to the church or new to Christianity, um, let me explain what Passover is really quick. Passover was a celebration that the, the, that the Jewish community would celebrate every year, once a year. And in this, this was kind of a, a double celebration. It was a celebration of past freedom and past, present freedom. Past freedom because they will remember what God did toward the Israelites when they were in slavery in Egypt and how God delivered them. That's why I'm calling it a past freedom. Every year they will remember that. But also every year they will come to the temple and will bring a little animal for the sacrifices, for, for sacrifices so their sins can be forgiven. 
So every year, these people will come, give the animal to the priest, the priest will sacrifice it, and people will be free of guilt and shame and stuff like that. And then we have like another 360-something days to, to load it up again and do it again the following year. Every year, and the scholars say that during these Passover celebrations, there was always thousands and thousands and thousands of people participating in this. Now, you would think that the spirit is always celebration. And if you were here last week, you may remember that this is when Jesus comes into town riding a donkey. But now finish, Jesus finishes that journey, and now he's entering the temple, which is the place where all this celebration is taking place. And for some reason, Jesus is stepping into this temple, and he, shows, and he seems a little bit irritated. Someone may call it cranky Jesus. He steps into the temple, and this is what he does in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out. Pause it for a second, because the word in the, original, in the original is more aggressively driving out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So, I, I, I got to show you a picture for you to understand what's happening here. All right? So pay attention to this picture right behind me. And this is a picture of the temple. All right? Now, I don't expect you to memorize all of this. Just follow, follow along. If you notice on one side of the temple, that's where you find the place that is the Holy of Holiest, which is the place where the high priest every year will go into that, into that place and intercede for people, and God will do something, some things, and people will be forgiven. But that place is only for the high priest. But if you notice, if you walk away from that, the outer layer of that, you find then a, a place called the court of priests. Means that there was a section in the temple where only the priest could go. But if you move a little bit away from that, then you find another court, which is a court dedicated to the men of Israel. Meaning that there was a section where only men could go, which I find super ironic. Right? And then you move away from that a little bit more, and then you find another court that we actually don't have in this picture, but we have a section dedicated for women. And then the, 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 the outer layer is the court of Gentiles. You guys see that one? Now, if we were in first century temple, that would be the place where you and I would have the right to worship. Only there. Now, you may get rid of that image, please. Come back and look at my beautiful face again. Look at here. Oh, <laughs> thank you, brother. I already knew that. Um, the, the core of the Gentiles will be the place where people like you and me that came to believe in God were allowed to come and worship every year. And if you notice, the temple had different sections for different kind of people. Now, when you see that image is where you get to see why is it that Jesus is so upset. So you're going to find three reasons why Jesus is upset. And this is where I'm going to spend most of my time. The first reason why Jesus is so angry has to do with that place, the core of Gentiles. See, everything that we're going to see here, what we saw in verse 12, is happening in that place, the core of Gentiles. What we're about to dig into is not outside the temple. 
is in that area of the temple, the only place where you and I could actually worship. So we know that there's a bunch of people coming from different towns. So the issue was not that there were uh, tables, well, money changer tables. That was not the issue. And part of the reason why we know this was not an issue is because if you came from Africa and you moved to the United States, you would need to change currencies to be able to buy the things that you need to buy in this country. Amen? Well, that's exactly what people would do here. They would come from a different place, go to the money changers, exchange money so they could buy their animals and whatever they need to do to, uh, for the sacrifices. That was not the issue. Just as much it was not the issue, the benches in which people could buy their doves, which was a section dedicated for poor people. The people that couldn't buy like a big animal would buy like this little bird so to be uh, forgiven and have a sacrifice. That is not the problem. Guess what the problem is? That, there, that this is taking place in the only area, the only area where Gentiles can worship. Do you know what the problem was? Number one, these people really didn't care about Gentiles worshiping. But they brought their business into the only area where you and I, people like you and I, were able to worship our creator. These people care more about profit than worshiping. These people did not care about other people worshiping, only them worshiping. And if you think about it, what they're doing is they're keeping the Gentiles from worshiping the same God that they claim to worship. See, for these people, the worship for other people was not as important. And if there's something that you have heard in this church, is that worship matters. That you worship matters and that other people worship, worshiping matters. See, as a church, we believe that the Bible makes it clear that worshiping is not just a religious thing you do. So here's a loving correction for those of you, my brothers and sisters, that like to miss the worship time. Worship matters. We worship not only because God demands it. We worship not only because it fits him. We worship not only because it's all, go all those good things, but because we need it. And here you have a group of people that really don't care. This is the reason why Jesus is so upset. They're taking for granted the necessity of Gentiles worshiping their God. Can you imagine? If this was our case right now, today, it'll be like us trying to worship and you get a guy walking down the aisle with hot dogs and sodas. Hot dogs, sodas, and you're like, uh, hot dogs. That's exactly what's happening there. So listen. Don't you think that this is the reason why Jesus is so angry about, about this thing? Our Jesus is a zealous Jesus. He knows what is important. He knows what matters. That's why you have to pay attention to how much you worship and how much you help the people you love worship. Don't put anything between that or before that. That's the first reason. Second reason has to do with what Jesus says. So he gets into the temple, he drives out people, he overturns the tables, and look at what happened in verse 13. Jesus says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And in that verse, we find the other two reasons why Jesus is upset. 
Jesus is quoting there Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. In Isaiah 56 is when we find how, how God calls the temple a house of prayer. Notice the description of the temple. It's his house. It's the place where God meets God. It's not a business place. It's not a dating place. It's not a social class place. It's a place in which God meets, in which people meet God, his house. But he calls it a house of prayer. And the word prayer there is just to give one word to describe everything that would happen in the temple. So in the temple, just like today, we pray, we teach, we sacrifice, we ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness. That would be the sacrificial part, right? And we praise God. That's, that's the summary of the word praying. But part of the reason why Jesus is so upset is because these people are misusing the temple. Instead of using the temple as a place where people meet God and repent and confess and believe and learn and all these things, they are using it for selfish, ambitious purposes. Not for his glory and not for the well-being of people. And our Jesus is a zealous Jesus. Not only he cares that the Gentiles worship, but he cares that his temple fulfills its purpose. There's a third reason. And here Jesus is about to get super confrontational. Just by the way, as you keep on reading, the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more confrontational he becomes. So if you see me getting louder and louder, blame it on the Bible. <laughs> third reason. He quotes Jeremiah 7, and he says that the temple has been turned into a den of robbers. Now, this is interesting. The word den there can be translated as a place of refuge or protection, as a place where you hide. So what is Jesus saying to this group of men? Well, to understand that, you have to look at Jeremiah chapter 7. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet, Jeremiah, is confronting all his people, all the, what I'm going to call, the religious people. Because they're doing everything right externally, but they actually have a false religion. So when you read Jeremiah chapter 7, it says, for example, that they are oppressing the foreigner, that, that they are oppressing the fatherless and the widow, that they are shedding innocent blood, that they're following other gods. But then Jeremiah says that they say something along the lines of, but it doesn't matter because we are in the temple. Listen up, church. This group of people thought that they could do whatever they wanted and live however they wanted to live. But because they were doing the religious things that religious people do, they were okay with God. That's a crazy confrontation. Jesus is saying to these people, you are stealing from the Gentiles the right to worship their God. You are misusing the temple. You put profit before worship, and you think that you can hide from me in my temple? That's what religious people do. This is the reason why I, when I use the term religious... I usually don't talk about religion when I'm talking about Christianity. 
Because a religious person is a person that can actually do everything right superficially. But the heart is far from God. See, the religious person does everything that is religiously right. You come to church, you read the Bible, you memorize verses, you serve, you give money. You might join even a life group. <laughs> and yet, the heart is away from God. See, the religious person thinks that if you do everything that is religiously right, God is okay with you. God loves you and is for you. God owes you something or you can earn something from God. And Jesus is saying these people that work in the temple. Actually, verse 15 says that these are the high priest. That would be kind of the pope. And the teachers of the law. Someone like me. And he says to these people. You think that you could hide from me? With your religious practices? See, this is the thing, people. Jesus not only sees behavior, he sees the heart behind the behavior. It is possible for us to do everything right and be so far from God. Actually, we didn't read this part, but when you read verses 18 to 22, which we're going to read next week, God willing, there's a transitional image. There's a transitional event there. So in verse 17, Jesus leaves the temple and he goes to Bethany, which is the place where three of his friends live, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And scholars believe that he went over there just to spend the night. The following morning, though, he's coming back to the city. And he gets hungry. And when he gets hungry, look at what happens in verse 19. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing, nothing in it except leaves. And he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. And you're like, what? So wait, the first part of the chapter shows angry Jesus at the temple. And now shows angry Jesus with nature? Like what's going on? Was he... Hangry? <laughs> maybe, just maybe. I don't think that was the case, of course. Let me explain it to you. Why is it that he gets so upset? And why is it, how is it that he's going to use this thing? And this is the part of the reason why Matthew puts this event right after the temple thing. See, in those days, if you get a, a, a fig tree, you, you would already know that a fig tree shows the leaves before the fruit. The real fruit. But when the leaves come, actually this tiny little fruit would also come with the leaves. Which was not a super tasty thing, but enough to quench your hunger a little bit. So Jesus is walking around this road and he sees this thing that is full of leaves. So of course he is assuming that because he looks, uh, it's full of leaves, the tree must have fruit. He approaches it and realizes that the tree is only leaves. 
no fruit whatsoever. Can you see the connection? So Jesus is cursing this tree not because he hated the tree. But he's using it as an illustration for religious people to see. This is what it means to be religious. To have all these leaves. To memorize verses, to read the Bible, to put it in your social media. To serve every now and then, to give money, to do anything that looks religious, but, not con but without your heart actually loving God. It is possible, church, to do everything right and yet be fruitless. It is possible for us to do everything right and not love the Lord and not love others. Isn't that what these people did? Yes, they were in the temple. Yes, they celebrated. They were about to celebrate Passover. Yes, they did pray and they taught the Bible and confessed. And repented. Yes, they were worshiping. But it was only leaves. And they thought that they could hide from the reality in the temple of God. How about if I tell you that I think that that's a pretty good description of what modern Christianity looks like. I'm not saying that that's a description of you. I'm just saying that's a description of what modern Christianity looks like. And I, and I want to prove it to you, okay? And, and the very least thing, that, that at the very least, what you got to do is you got to ask yourself the question, is, is that really me? Or is that me? Is that a description of where I am? Because the worst thing that, you could ha that could happen to you is that you actually believe that you are walking with God and you're not. See, I feel like if every week I'm trying to convince you not to be Christians, what I don't want is for you to have a false Christianity. So this week I was reading a study done by Barna Group. They came out with this book that is called Unchristian which is a survey that is comparing self-proclaimed Christians with non-Christians. Now, with surveys, I'm always super careful, especially in this part of the world, because anybody calls themselves Christians. And the reasoning is super simple. If I'm not any other religion, I must be an evangelical, which I'm starting to struggle a little bit with that term as well, because it means anything. People in the government call themselves that. So I want to give you a list of some of the things that show up in this survey to, to show you why is it that in this part of the world, this thing about being religious and not really being believers, it's a thing. So I'm going to give you some of the positive things first so we could relax a little bit, okay? This is what the survey says. The survey says that Christians cause less in public the non-Christians. And I'm like, 
We cost less. Way to go, Christians. That's what the service is. It's a positive thing. Number two. says that Christians give more to the poor. And to that I would say, amen. It says that Christians are less likely to recycle. Now, I don't know how that's positive, but, but he showed up there. Especially if we believe that the Lord is restoring all things. But, you know, whatever. Maybe by theology. I don't know. It says that Christians give more to religious nonprofits. And I would say, amen. That's good. This one is funny, too. Christians buy fewer lottery tickets than non-Christians. And I'm like, oh, wow, there's Christians that still believe in being lucky. Oh, all right. It's a positive thing, I guess. So I'm looking through this list, and I'm thinking, wow, we're making a difference in this world. But I want you to pay attention to the negative ones. Because it's going to show you what is the difference between religious and being a believer. Believers visit pornographic websites just as much as non-believers. Believers get drunk just as much as non-believers. Believers take illegal drugs or take prescriptions, medicines, uh, medicines not prescribed to them just as much as non-believers. Believers are willing to lie just to get out of trouble just as much as non-believers. And believers intentionally seek revenge within, the, within 30 days just as much as non-believers. Ain't that crazy? Actually, in the survey, 84% of the non-Christians that took this survey, they said that they know at least one Christian, 84%. But only 15% of those 84% said that the friend they knew, only 15% said that the friend they knew had a different lifestyle to theirs. You know, I always remember, when I was writing this, I, I remember when I was in high school, I grew up in Christianity, but I became a Christian my first year of college. But in high school, um, I had a friend, that, I don't know how we landed, we were talking about uh, religion, and I said, listen, uh, I'm a Christian. And he goes, Oh, you are one of the cool ones. You know why he said that? Because there was no difference between his lifestyle and mine. You know what the difference was? The label. Now, you tell me this. Don't you think that this is the reason why God's heart is broken? Don't you think that this is the reason why, rightly so, he goes into the temple and he's upset? Not only people, we are hurting ourselves. Not only we are damaging his name. But we are damaging other people as well. How could God not feel anger in light of this? Thanks God that God is not just the God of anger. But he's also I've got a compassion. Which is the second emotion that we see here. 
So look at what happened in verse 14. In the middle of all these things, he drives out people, he turns the table around, and he says in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. So on one end, you see this, so you see this paradoxical Jesus. On one end, he's angry, and on the other end, he's showing compassion. So for some reason, these religious people thought that there were two groups of people that couldn't participate in worship. The blind and the lame. And Jesus is going to contradict that by healing a blind and a lame. Now, why would Jesus do that? Because the first and foremost emotion Jesus displays in the gospel is compassion, not just anger. See, this is what compassion means in the New Testament. is when Jesus sees someone in need and feels pity. He's genuinely concerned for people's needs. And he has to do something. Why is it that Jesus is compassionate? Because God the Father is compassionate. And part of the reason why Jesus is struggling with anger here, if you will, is because he knows that the temple was also supposed to be a place of compassion. See, the temple is a visual representation, if you will, of the character of God. So when people invite people to worship, it's because he's a God of compassion. When God teaches through his word, it's because he's a God of compassion. When we pray and we respond and all these things, it's because God is a God of compassion. What Jesus is showing here is trying to correct the thinking that people could be Christians without being people of compassion. So look at what Jesus is doing here. He's showing to them that there's a reason why God feels anger. He's, not, he, he's, he's also showing them that at the same time, he's a God of compassion. And at the same time, he's saying to them, this is how you ought to be. People of compassion and people of righteous anger. People of compassion and people of righteous anger. And in addition to that, stop being religious. So the question is this, what is it that these people needed to experience and learn in order to be transform transformed? What is it that you need to learn and experience in order for you to be transformed? What is it that I need to, be, to, to experience in order for me to be transformed? There's nothing worse than being a religious person. And there's nothing worse than you being a slave to sinful anger. And there's nothing worse than that, than that mean not being able to be compassionate. So how do we change? Point number three. We need to see love in Jesus. And this is the crazy thing. We change when we see Jesus as a Messiah. So he's doing all this crazy stuff in the temple. And the religious leaders got super upset. And they got upset because children in the temple are screaming at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, the son of David. So they're making a connection and they're saying, wait, these kids are saying that Jesus is the true king that comes from the family of David. And they said to Jesus, you need to stop this. And Jesus, to make him even a little bit more upset, I think, he does this in verse 16. Yes, Jesus replied, 
Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And when he says this, he's quoting Psalm chapter 8. And in Psalm chapter 8, it's a, it's a song that talks about the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, you know why these kids are worshiping me? Because I am the true king and the true Messiah. You know what the word Messiah means? Savior. You know what changes people? What changes you? What changes me? Is what we know what it means to be Jesus or have Jesus as Savior. Listen up, church. In my personal journey with the Lord, this is one of the things that have changed my life radically. Is when I think of Jesus as a Savior at the cross. You know why? Because it is only at the cross where you see the anger of God and the compassion of God at the same time. If you don't think that God is angry, look at the cross. How can God not be angry at us if we have been sinful? If we dishonor him and dishonor other people and we hurt other people and we hurt ourselves. You know what would happen if God looks at our sin and then looks away? He would stop being holy. God cannot look away. And this is precisely the reason why Jesus has to go to the cross. You know what makes Christianity so beautiful though? That when you really believe in Jesus, God is no longer angry with you. You know why? Because Jesus took the anger that we deserved. This is what makes Christianity different to anything else and any other religion in the world. We are the only religion, quote unquote, in which we have a God that demands punishment and then becomes a human being and takes the punishment. So if you don't believe in the anger of God, you have to look at the cross. But it is because Jesus took the punishment we deserve that God is no longer angry with his people. Not only the anger of Jesus you see at the cross, uh, of God you see at the cross, but the compassion of God you see at the cross. See, God knew that you cannot hide your shame and your guilt with religious practices. You just can't. So God extends compassion by allowing you to see that you are very sinful. That's why Jesus dies at the cross. But at the same time, that you are deeply loved. Because Jesus, in compassion, takes what you deserve. See, it is only when we see at the cross this combination of the anger of God and the compassion of God, which at the end of the day is all about the love of God. See, because Jesus does that, is that now we can worship him in freedom. Why? Because we don't need to be afraid of God. He already took the punishment. And we respond in adoration because we receive the compassion of God. So when your heart tells you, you got to pretend that you are good to be accepted by God, you have to look at the cross, the anger of God and the compassion of God at the same time. And when you feel that you cannot change, 
you look at the cross and remember the anger of God and the compassion of God. Listen up. If God in his anger did not destroy you, and God in Jesus extended compassion, why wouldn't you want to surrender your life to him? Why wouldn't you do that? If he truly loved you that way. Do you have that? Church, stop pretending that you're okay if you're not. You don't need to prove anything. You already approved? You don't need to be afraid of anything. Jesus already took God's anger. You cannot lose God. You already have his compassion. Can you please surrender your love to him for real? And live in light of what you already have. And when we get that, listen, not only our anger is transformed, but we become people of compassion. Amen? Let's pray. God Almighty, we ask that you allow us to see the cross more and more. That you allow us to see and understand that the wrath of God was already appeased. And the compassion of God was already extended. And I pray, Lord, that as we see that, not only you help us die to our religious behavior, but that we live in the freedom of knowing that we don't need to hide from you because we have been already forgiven and accepted. Because Jesus already took your anger and already extended your compassion. Therefore, we already loved. We want to live in light of the gospel we have already received. Help us see your love with such a magnitude that affects the way we live. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the church says.